Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. In episode 68, we'll kick things off with a hearty talk on the latest documentary from Kirsten Johnson, the personal work, Dick Johnson is Dead. This will be followed up by a heavy dose of tension and violence as each one of us rank our choices for the six best revenge films of all time. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which we were prescribed a film by CeCe Sabathia by way of listener Rob Patrick, who claims it is the former Brewers and Yankees hurler's favorite film of all time, the 1989 mobster comedy directed by and starring Eddie Murphy, alongside the generational talents of Richard Pryor and Red Fox. So, Andy, let's go ahead and dig on in, as always. Let's do it. It feels like it's been a minute, so let's get things going. Our lead film this week comes to us from Netflix, and it is the newest from documentarian Kirsten Johnson, the acclaimed director of Camera Person. It is a love letter to and about her aging father, as well as an exercise in grief, memory, and family. Let's discuss Dick Johnson is Dead. Dick Johnson is dead. Okay. The next film from Kristen Johnson. Um, we've both seen Camera Person. Mm-hmm. You've seen it fairly recently. Uh, it's we, been a, less uh, than a year, maybe. We, we, we keep forgetting how long we've been doing the show, I yeah. think. Because it has been... We've been doing the show like over a year and a half. So. And yeah. it was one of the early pick sixes I, you gave me. Yeah, and I guess I, I say recently because you've seen it more recently than I have. That's true, I have. Um, I really was drawn to camera person a lot. The, yes. There was something unique and singular and a singular vision to it. The way she was able to compile all of this footage from decades of being a, well, camera person on all sorts of document documentaries um, across a lot of different kind of landscapes and put together her own story from that footage was pretty amazing. Still one of my favorite documentaries of the last 10 years. Um, uh, she came back fairly quickly after Camera Person. Um, it's nice to see. Uh, this is, well, I mean, it's still personal. It's even more personal than, than Camera Person. It sure is. Um, this movie is, I mean, you can sum it up pretty simply. I mean, it's m- not a simple film, but it is quite literally about, well, a daughter paying tribute to her father who she adores and she lets you know that within seconds of the movie starting and she is so uh, scared and just kind of worried about the impending well I mean demise of her father that and coupling that with the fact that she did not do her best to get a lot of footage of her mother decides to really go full bore and well, she asks her father if he will partake in quite the unique film about him. Yeah, he's he's having to retire and move out of his house and move to New York with her and share a one-bedroom apartment with her. Yeah, Seattle to New York. That's a move. Yeah, that is quite a move. And we discover that he's got some dementia that is starting to, to creep in, uh, much like her mother did. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what made this such um, such a pressing issue for her is like, look, I got I, I got to do something. And what she chooses to do is uh, extraordinarily unique um, and like kind of macabre on one end. But like, I, I don't know, it's it's very admirable. She she chooses to shoot to to fake uh, her father's death in a bunch of different scenes in, in, in a, in a variety of ways. There's a car crash. There's an uh, AC falls on his head. There's a, um, a a worker man, like a construction worker that smacks into him from around the corner. The most jarring one. Oh yeah. That one is, that one's a, and stressful watch in certain sequences like that. But I think like you said, though, it is sort of dark. Well, the, the, the theme of this movie is very dark, but, she cuts through all of that in a very joyous way. Well, they both do. They're collaborating on this together in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's making this with her. He is so game for this. Like he beyond game. You can't tell if he's doing it just because he loves her. And in, at one point she says, he'll do anything I ask him to do. It's, I, sh- almost should, I almost shouldn't take advantage of it. You can't tell if he's doing it because of that or if he actually is enjoying it. You know what I mean? And, and, and this sounds I, I, to listeners, this might sound like it's pretty dark, but honestly, I would say it's about 10% dark and the 90% love and light and really positivity throughout this whole thing. It's just, it's got this, this kind of, like I, like I said, this kind of like macabre veneer over it Mm -hmm. that might seem kind of, kind of, you know, creepy. Well, you can't shake that off entirely. No, you're not. (laughs) But she injects it with so much positivity and love and and optimism, even considering some of the the darker and sadder things that we're getting into, not just staging his death, but also the struggle with with dementia and Alzheimer's um, and and kind of grief about about just this. This is a thing about it's, it's about memory. And I guess a lot of camera person was like that, too. But this is a lot more about grief as well. And and. And um, hopelessness, not 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 hopelessness, but um, but helplessness, you know, because this is something that we have absolutely no control over. We're all going to die eventually. And, um, you know, watching your parents go through something like this is probably makes you feel even more helpless. Um, this could have been a really like kind of depressing watch. And it, it's not that at all. Not at all. The, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it is about grief, but it's also about knowing that grief is, is going to compound on you and preparing yourself for that. And that's what she's trying to do. And yeah, and I like the way she questions herself and her, is she being selfish a lot of times? Is she taking advantage of him? Is she, should she step back and, and not keep pushing forward? There are moments with her alone in a closet in this movie that are just... I mean, it, it's never done for the audience's sake. I never thought that once, um, yeah. even though it is technically. Um, she even admits at one point in this movie to her dad that she's just getting paid by Netflix. Look, we're getting paid to do this and you're not. So <laughs> but yeah. sorry. But um, yeah. I mean, there's no, nothing's cut out of this movie in a way that there's no decisions made for the sake of, oh, we don't need that to be out there. We don't need the audience to hear that everything is on the table and yeah it's 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 one of the many reasons i love her work is because her films are unique but they're also free of 
many of the cliches that I don't like about modern documentaries. Um, yeah, while watching it, I was thinking, you know, this is a documentary for Andy because there's no talking heads. There's no, there's none of that. You know, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite of that because they accidentally run into people that they have similar stories to talk about with, about losing parents and dealing with parents dying. And it's just, they kind of happen on these people spontaneously in this movie. Sure. Yeah. They don't feel at all like they were scheduled to be interviewed or we need you here for this. They just naturally happen. Yeah. It's very serendipitous. Nary a lapel mic, a lavalier mic in this entire film. Lots of quite honestly, just, I mean, not a lot of shots other than the staged sequences are even set up and even planned. There are moments where the camera drops to the ground and sits sideways for a while in this film and you just listen to conversations. Yeah. And uh, it's, this is a, uh, I got to tell you, I was, by the end of this thing, I was laughing and crying at the same time. Mm-hmm. With I smiling my ass off and crying. It was a weird, a very weird feeling that I haven't had in many movies lately. Yeah. I uh, love hearing that. It was uh, an amazing experience. Uh, let's talk about Dick Johnson himself here. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like this guy's got to be one of the, he ought to be one of the breakout stars of the year. <laughs> right. <laughs> of, of film and television. I love this man. He yeah. and and that's like you said she mentions it right away that like she loves this man. He is a great he's a great dad. He's just a terrific person. He just seems like such a swell guy. She's setting you up right away. Listen. I know I'm biased. I love this man. He's my father. He's been there for me my whole life. But now I'm going to show you in 90 minutes I'm going to show you that the reason why I'm right. And that you're going to fall in love with him too. And you get to meet a lot of people who give testaments to this guy. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to dive into details because you have to go into this movie without knowing very much. Yeah, please. But I just got to say the way she sets it up and the way she bounces back and forth throughout this film and and then the way she drives it home is just, uh, I mean, the final moments of this of this thing. But yes, you're right. Dick Johnson, a you know, a longtime psychiatrist with with lots of patients who sing his praises and his entire family has nary a bad thing to say about this man. And you get to see why. And then there's that relationship between the two. And it's just It's beautiful. It really is. It really And is. she's so patient with him, especially once his dementia starts to get worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um it, it, she's so patient with him and that, and that's it's that's very admirable i i'm giving this film four and a half stars but i i have a really hard time saying that this isn't a perfect five star film i mean honestly this is this is an exceptional piece of work this is excellent this is um you know i mean say what you will about some of the uh, moments that might take away from the flow of it as far as the staged sequences I don't know how you feel about those, but I was captivated by. Them. Oh, you mean like the heaven scenes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, it, she does a really interesting job of of portraying heaven, especially the the production design on it is a blast. Bringing him no, back I, to his younger days and things like that. Yes. Yeah, I, no, I didn't. That didn't bother me at all. I actually really loved that, especially she shot it with a with a really like uh, um, 
uh, high uh, uh, shutter speed camera. She did. And there's a lot of great slow motion in those sequences. It's just a great tribute to him. It gives him these moments to just make, it just pays tribute to him in such a beautiful way. And think about in 10 years, she's going to be able to look back on this thing and be like, wow, look at this, this thing that I did for my dad. She's got to feel very proud of this film. Um, She better. This film floored me. I, 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 I'm going to be at a four and a half right now as well, but I will revisit this in the Mm -hmm. near future. Definitely before the end of the year. Okay, we've reached break time. Take yourselves a deep breath and get fully re-energized because you're going to need all the endurance you can get when we break down a pick six of the best revenge flicks of all time. Welcome back to the show. This segment is uh, Best Served Cold. We are ranking the six best revenge films of all time. It's a genre that's steeped in violence and known for its dark and gritty films, but it's not without its fair share of comedies as well. Though I wonder how many of those are going to show up on, uh, on the following two lists. Yeah, I don't know. Let's find out, I guess. Yeah, I, I was telling you off mic that I think that we are going to have two very different... Uh, lists here we'll see i mean why not find out right now (laughs) oh yeah you know what let's all right number six for me is such a number six pick it's just one of those things where i did you know i don't i used to like a long time ago and i watched a couple of times after it came out haven't watched it in so long and then i rewatched it and i'm like you know what that's a that's a that's a number six for me and that is the I guess most recent iteration of the Count of Monte Cristo. Oh man, I this was one that I wanted to rewatch. It's I don't know why what it is about this movie. It's not great, <laughs> but it's also so entertaining. And Guy Pierce is so sinister in this movie, and so he gets under your skin. And this was it reminded me of the time when everyone. We got Jim Caviezel thrust on us all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, like frequency and yeah. thin red line and this and then Passion of the Christ. And then after that, where'd Jim Caviezel go? But uh, he was everywhere for some reason. And he's serviceable. I mean, there's nothing really impressive about him. You can't really like he's just kind of there. Yeah. He's nothing to write home about, but he's like Ben Chaplin or, you know, (laughs) an actor like that. I mean, just, they're fine. They're fine. Uh, this movie is kind of overly long, but the overall, the, the classicness of this story is, is one to kind of get behind in the way that Kevin Reynolds directs. This is, is classic enough. And then, like I said, just the, the the way Guy Pierce embraces the villain in this movie is 
makes it better than it should be. So that is why I put this film at number six on my list. I've only ever seen this once and it's been a long time, but I do remember really enjoying it. Um, the one and only time that I saw it. So, huh. Um, uh, real quick before we end on this. No, go this ahead. This film came out in 2002 and movie posters back then were pretty funny. This, <laughs> this one has a tagline that says, prepare for adventure, count on revenge. Oh my goodness, really? <laughs> I can't, I, I don't want to meet the copywriter who wrote that. Oh boy, it's pretty funny. Um, number six on my list, we're going to talk about very briefly because we've talked about it recently. And I wasn't, when I was going over my list of like what, what really are revenge films, this one kind of shocked me. And I, and I recall thinking, oh shit, you're right. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a revenge film. I guess so. That's the, the whole, entire purpose. The whole premise of yeah, the film. Yeah, voyage. Is going to find the jaguar shark. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't put it any higher than this because, um, not because it's not necessarily a better film than some of the others on the list, but it's the others are better revenge films. Mm. But um, but the revenge plot of the Life Aquatic, um, I think is a really great revenge plot. You know, he's a documentarian. His best friend has been murdered, and he's gonna go find that shark and fucking kill it and i just find that hilarious as the premise of the or at least the jumping off point of a film you know um and the way that it gets tied up there at the end is so poignant and special and it brings the whole quote-unquote revenge thing back um and that final that the final big scene really mm -hmm. is you know possibly the best scene of the whole film yeah i think it is um i've never disputed the fact that this is a great idea and yeah. i just the execution for me is wobbly. Um, I didn't think of this qualifying for this list, but it does. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's number yeah. six for me. Okay. What's number five for you? Number five for me is a rewatch this week as well. That quite impressed me actually. Um, this is a moment in a career of a, well, iconic director that he found newfound success and decided to make an old school movie. Well, a remake of a movie and make it in a truly old school way. He brought back the original composer of the original film, not the original composer, a Elmer Bernstein composed it, but took the exact same outline of the original score and copycatted it. And he put some fun actors at the helm, but he also brought back the old actors from the original movie to play minor characters in this and that is Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear um, so Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte play the care main characters in this movie yeah <laughs> Robert De Niro plays the psychotic stalker rapist ex-con who's stalking Nick Nolte's family and in the original film Robert Mitchum plays the De Niro character and Gregory Peck plays Nolte and in this film Robert Mitchum plays a interesting kind of investigator who's trying to help Nick Nolte figure this guy out while he's stalking them. And then Gregory Peck plays a defense attorney who is caught between the two guys. <laughs> oh, Greg and by the way, you Gregory get, Peck as a defense attorney. I don't know if I buy no, that. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> he was bad at it a couple of times. 
Um, Jessica Lange's in this as Nolte's wife. And then you get an early career performance from Juliette Lewis as their daughter. And, you know, in a very similar way that Scorsese kind of discovered Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver, you get this moment again with a teenage actress playing playing alongside a crazy De Niro character in a Martin Scorsese movie. And it's, and it's weird to think about that parallel. Um, the movie is very over the top, but purposely. And it pummels you with that. And the editing by his longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, is incredibly fast-paced and jarring and tension-filled and all over the place. But that becomes a style. And for whatever reason, I enjoyed it. It's not a great movie. It's not one of his best by any means. It's middle tier Scorsese, but as a Hollywood entertainment, I think it it works enough for the revenge genre. So that is number five for me. That's a, that, that was one that I also considered watching and just never got around to. My number five is one that I was really worried that I wasn't going to get around to because I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I busted out the old laptop and thought, this I can, I can justify torrenting. Um, and that is Payback. I watched that this week. I watched it today. <laughs> Tell me why this made your list. I think it is so much fun. <laughs> it is so much fun. And, you know, it doesn't work without Mel Gibson. Oh no! Of you couldn't. Not. You couldn't have someone else play that part. It's a great. It's a song. great Gibson role for sure. It's a terrific Gibson role. He's because he's he's so unlikable. He is a bad guy. You know mm-hmm. the uh, the posters for the film was like, "Get ready to root for the bad guy." Oh, I remember that poster vividly. Um, but I, he's. There's something charming and charismatic about him in that the, in that Mel Gibson way that we've always you know, loved. Um, and, uh, man, it's just, it, it's, it's dark and gritty, but still funny at times. And I feel like because it doesn't take itself too seriously, it really leans heavy into the noir, um, between the way that it's shot, like all of the buildings look very industrial Gothic. There's no color in any of them. Yeah, it's a very gray looking movie. <laughs> All of the cars are like old detective cars, you know, and uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's got that sheen to it. That's, uh, there's just so many fun little like flourishes like that. And and Gibson's a blast. It's the baddies. All of the baddies are, are fun. Greg Henry, the terrible frosted hair bad guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> he is unrelentingly bad in this. He's like a... A weird, bad version of Corbin Burnson or something. I, I think it was the first time I ever saw Maria Bello. I think it was the first time I ever saw Deborah Kara Unger. Unless you saw the game before this. I don't know if you did. I but. didn't see the game before I saw this. Okay. So I saw this when it came out in 99. This is a very Deborah Kara Unger era. She was everywhere in the 90s. She really was. And then what happened? So let me, let me give you a little interesting pieces of information on Payback before we move on. Oh, please, please. So... The production designer took over um, and reshot 30% of the film. <laughs> uh, he took out, there was, there was a scene um, with some spousal abuse. 
Um, and they took that out because they wanted you to not, they wanted you to be able to relate to the Porter character a little bit better and not see him so much as a villain. So they took that part out. Um, and then um, they also added a ton to the third act of the film. So they did 10 days of reshoots. Um, there was a new opening scene. They added all the the voiceover narration that wasn't there before either. And then um, Chris Christopherson just walked on as the new villain. They they added all of that. You can tell in the reshoots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just kind of kind of hilarious. Um, some people think that the uh, that the director's cut is much more gritty and, and interesting, um, but I don't think. I don't think I would like that as much. I think you need some of the levity that this version the, has. This movie should not take itself too seriously, right? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't want to see a serious director's cut of this movie. No. <laughs> okay, interesting. So number four for me is a film that technically is not something I'm a huge fan of for the most part. But if we're talking about I'm in the mood for a revenge movie and this one hit me the right way the first time I saw it and then it hit me I was just in the right mindset to enjoy it again and that's uh, Chanwick Park's Old Boy. That's my number four also. Okay. All right. Perfect. Okay. So um, did you rewatch it this week? Uh, yeah, I did. So actually. did I. So did I. And it's you know it's relentless in a way though that I was on board with from the beginning because it kind of felt like in a way that's different than, um, Oh God, what's that movie we disagreed on? You gave me as a, I saw the devil. Yes. That one was more like in your face, realistic and gritty and not to say this is not, but this feels like a movie. It feels like it's happening in a world that's not in the real world almost sure in yeah, a way. Yeah. And the, and I could separate that and want more of the crazy and inventive violence that goes on in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And the way that Park handles all of it and orchestrates it is pretty, pretty impressive. This movie is, you know, long been lauded, you know, since it came out in 2003. Spike Lee even remade this movie. Which mm -hmm. I have not seen it, but uh, no, I, I, I skipped that one too. But it's obviously one of the most highly regarded. South Korean films of this century. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that it's so highly regarded is because um, it's so unique and original. Like this, the screenplay is so unique and original. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't imagine. You know, uh, the 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 mind that came up <laughs> came up with this whole premise. And if there's even people out there who haven't seen it yet. We won't spoil it for them because this is one of those that like, you know, back in the day when this came out, everybody's like, don't talk about it. Don't let anybody spoil it for you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and, and most people know what the twist is by now. But if you if you don't, we won't spoil it for you. We don't need to um, go into that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just it's so inventive and original. And, and the, there's the corridor fight scene that has been <laughs> that has been uh, um, uh, uh, parodied and uh, attempted to be replicated for good reason it's yeah. it's excellent it's it's very cool. quite impressive yes. yeah exactly <laughs> um it took them three days to shoot that they did like a I dozen a dozen takes of it and the only thing that is cgi in that is the knife that goes into his back other than that that whole thing was actually that's impressive uh um you know practical effects basically mm -hmm. for lack that's of a better word that's very impressive yeah <laughs> i i, I 
I didn't love this as much the first the uh, as I did the first time. Same. Um, because when I did my preliminary list for this, I had it pretty high at like number two, and it tumbled down to four. Um, most uh, part of that's because I watched some things for the first time that I loved, and then I I you know, um, it didn't hold up quite as well. But it's I think part of that is when you already know the twist. It doesn't land as as well. There's that too, yeah. And there's the there's the other um, there's that the added piece of like uh, I think Grayson and Leach mentioned it recently, which is like, well, you can't blame him if you saw what he saw. You would have told also. You tell when you see something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah. So anyway, there there is that. But um, but yeah, the, the, it's it gets extra points for for. Um, being inventive and and just very inventive and, and super original. Some of the editing is a little annoying to me, but it's, it's a it's more of a product of its of its time. Yeah, I mean, this came out. I remember when it came out, two thousand and three. Yeah, yeah. We, I was you know still in the midst of really being super super into getting into foreign language films at that time. Mm-hmm. I remember its release and people freaking out about it. And but yes, that era. You're gonna. It's already aged a little bit as far as some of the techniques, the editing yeah. techniques that were being yeah, used I, at the I, time. I always like to call it music video editing. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's what it feels like. Yeah, it does at times. Well, we're in the top three now. We are. Yeah, I'm very yeah. curious what you have at, uh, at at as your top three. I don't know if we're uh, gonna have a lot of crossover here. Well, we've had one. We might have one more. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. What's number three for you? Uh, number three for me is the original Swedish the girl with the dragon tattoo um, I, I put this on here and considerably high because this movie kind of ushered in I wasn't aware of you know the novels or anything when it came out but I was quite obvious I mean quite blown away by the presence of this new actress in this movie um, and she I don't know. I haven't seen her do much since. I know she's been in several things like Prometheus, Prometheus yeah. and that and that, but she hasn't been quite as great as she is in this trilogy, this original trilogy that became like a phenomenon. They quickly remade it two years later with David Fincher's version. And then, you know, just rising Rooney Mara's star even more from that point. Um, she just had a baby this week. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Hopefully they're not putting any face paint on the baby. But, uh, <laughs> um, so the actress is Numi Rapach Rapace. Numi Rapace. I just how re- do we say her last? I name? pronounce it Rapace, but I don't. I, that's not based on anything. I don't you know could, any. I don't know anything. A anybody of else ways does. you could go. Yeah, with there it. is. There is. <laughs> um, we'll call her Numi. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, she is so engaging as the Elizabeth Salander character. Um, really, I would imagine, you know, she's the girl of the, I mean, she's the main focus of the film, but when you really start to, to dive into the story, it very well could have been the, the male character's point of view, the, the journalist played by, uh, Michael Nyquist. Yeah, but he doesn't have a dragon tattoo. It's true. He doesn't, we don't know what kind of tattoos he has at all. <laughs> um, that would have been you know, kind of cool to see Daniel Craig's version in the Fincher movie. They could have really revealed some sort of like bicep tat. Yeah, the boy with the yeah. windmill tattoo. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, never went there, but uh, 
I think it's just, I have fond memories of her emerging in this film and being so good in this role and cap like physically capable of pulling that role off and making you believe in her and getting behind her character and, and just wanting her to succeed. Uh, and she did it in three films in a row and they all came back like rapid fire. They all came out like they filmed them all together and they came out within like a year apart from each other, all three of them. And she's excellent in all of them, but I chose the original uh, because that's just the one where you're immediately thrown off guard by her and the rest you're like on her, you know, rooting for her, but you already, you're not, you know what she's capable you're, you're of. there already with yeah, her. Yeah. Yeah. But this, uh, that's why this one ranks a little higher for me. So that's my number three. See, I didn't even think of the girl with the dragon tattoo as a revenge film. So it never even came into my mind that, to, to put it on the list. Number three on my list was a first time watch. And, mm. um, what's that? I, I was really struggling between the two and the three spot. Mm. Um. Uh, man, number three on my list is Gaspar Noe is Irreversible. Oh boy! And I know that might come as a shock to you, and maybe some others. So uh, uh, allow me to make the case for Irreversible. Okay, let's um, let's hear this. So you have seen this, right? Yeah, when it came out. So okay. it's been a long time. <sighs> okay. So let's let's get the cat out of the bag right out of the way, right out of the gate with with the opening scene with what's so disturbing about the film. Um, so there is no way that I can defend the ten minute rape scene. Um, it is very 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 difficult to watch. Um, and I understand people who argue that it is gratuitous. Um, but um. I think that it is, it shouldn't come as a shock to anybody from a Gaspar Noe film, you know? Um, and, and he's confronting you with that to, <sighs> sometimes I wonder why, but um, to make everything else that happens in the film uh, carry the weight that it needs to um, for thematic purposes. Um, as it uh, then, okay. So as it pertains to the violence in the beginning of the film, um, so I, I agree with what Roger Ebert said and, and Ebert said that, um, that this was an inherently moral film and that the, the structure of it makes it an inherently moral film. So, so, you know, the fact that he, he confronts you with the, the, the act of vengeance and the violence and everything, um, first, um, that forces you to um, to 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 process that you know that that first before he shows you the the acts that inspired that vengeance that forces you to to process it first and then you spend the rest of the film thinking about the implications of that so that once you get to the absolutely traumatic rape scene um, you have all of that information already and you've already digested it by the time you get there um and i don't know if it's necessarily questioning like is is that violence is it worth it 
now that you've seen that scene in the middle of the film does does it uh, you know does it justify do the, do the ends justify the means that that's one of the reasons that I put this film so high is that, that it it forces you to have this conversation we're not having this kind of conversation about these this kind of you know uh, philosophical debate almost with a movie like fucking payback as much as I love <laughs> payback. Um, but uh, I, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I, while I can still understand the, the other side of the argument and I, and I can't argue against anybody who feels the opposite is uh, of what I do. Um, but then we can get into some of the more meat of the film, the party scenes, Gaspar Noé shoots party scenes like nobody else. <laughs> um, and the party scene in this is a great long take party scene. Um, it's not actually a long take. Uh, it, it's The film is supposed to look like 12 different shots, but it's actually many, many more in the way that he splices it together because of the rotating camera kind of makes it, he's able to edit it and make it look like, they, like it's 12 long shots. But that party scene is... Um, is probably one of the most impressive uses of his rotating camera. Um, other than the beginning, you know, where they're, where they're, he's going inside the ambulance and then out of it back onto the street and then inside the other ambulance and then back out of that and into another car. Um, it, it can get dizzying <laughs> for sure, but it's still very, very visually impressive. This is an original, stylistic, very unique film. Um, and God, do I appreciate that. The filmmaking aspect of it. That's the one thing that keeps me coming back to Gaspar Noé films, as difficult as they are for me to watch. Um, Noé admitted to using cocaine uh, in order to carry the very heavy cameras that were needed for the rotating shots. He admitted to using cocaine in order to get himself, you know, in the f- physically able to do it. Um, and then one, one of the last things that I wanted to, to bring up... Um, I don't want to spoil anything for the end of the film in case people haven't seen it. Although how much can you really encourage people to go see a film like this? That is, Mm. that has some of the most disturbing scenes of violence and sexual violence that you've ever seen in a film. Um, But, but if you're going to, I don't want to spoil the end. The only thing I will say is the very, very end where it has that flickering, like, like almost the, the kind of thing that will give you a, 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 um, um, What's what's the word I'm looking for? A seizure that like that seizure inducing oh, yes, like yes. that flickering light mm. thing. I f- I I feel like that's such a clever way to end the film because he's kind of saying like for those of you who didn't flinch or look away at that guy getting his head absolutely bashed in by a fire extinguisher or the ten minute traumatic rape scene you're are you still you're saying, here yeah yeah exactly are you still here and and oh th- this is the one thing that you're going to look away from this is the one thing that you that forces you to actually um turn your face from the camera because you can't mm-hmm. stand to look at it any longer and what does that say about us and how desensitized we've become to extreme acts of violence sure yeah um in in you know 2001 when this thing came out um uh, I had gone into watching this. It was my first time. I, I'd gone into watching it very um, with trepidation. I was, I was very nervous to see this, and you know, and yes, I was ex- extremely squeamish and and uh, white knuckled the entire time. But by the time it was over, you know, I almost had to laugh and just say, "God, no way! You 
absolutely batshit crazy genius. He's he he's a genius. I don't understand how he does it. Um, <laughs> because he confronts you film after film after film with some of the most disturbing stuff you've ever seen, but does it in such a unique and cinematic way that forces me to still watch his films. Um, I've never seen Enter the Void. Neither have I. But that's where I'm headed next, I think. Because Listen, yeah, you make a case, but I think you just have to be on Noe's wavelength, and that's where you're there. You're there for him. I'm not know? the type of person that, that would be on a director like this wavelength. I, I just, you are, though, fully I mean, I at think, this point. I think it's his his direction and his camera work that keeps me coming back every time. All right. So that's my diatribe on Irreversible. So yeah, you know for sure that's not going to be a crossover. Right? No, I, I knew that. I knew that wouldn't be. <laughs> so uh, on that note, what's number two on your list? Number two for me is a film that I think is a almost an overlooked and underrated movie in this director's filmography. Now at this point, uh, clearly one of the most high-profile directors now, especially now. And this is uh, the 2013 film Prisoners from. Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Um, this is a film that when it came out, it was the second film he had released that year along with Enemy. It was the second film he had released with Jake Gyllenhaal. But what he does in this movie first of all gives Hugh Jackman some sort of different gear that he finds. Which when you can do that with Hugh Jackman it's, it's kind of amazing you kind of see in him like we just saw in him with bad education. Oh, he has this in him. Wow. Okay. And Hugh Jackman is excellent in this film. It's, I st- it's weird to say. Yeah. I still think it's probably my favorite performance. It's his me. best performance. Yeah. Bad education's very, probably right there with it, but this is, that's the best he's been since this. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Um, but this thing has a ton of great performances ton the three, i think this is one of the jake gyllenhaal's most underappreciated <clears throat> performances in this film this was right when he started for me i know you liked him before this but for me this was when he started to get really good and i was like oh wait a second he can actually act huh? well, you loved him an enemy for sure you love that film well yeah I, I, and then this comes out yeah i can see yeah. why you would be a little bit more on the train yeah um but yeah i mean you've got veterans like viola davis and maria bello and melissa leo in this film and of course, one of your favorites, Paul Dano, mm-hmm. um, Terrence Howard thrown in the mix. Um, I and like he him was, from time to time. And he was really hot at the time as well, because he was coming fresh off of, of Hustle, Hustle and Flow. And, flow, yeah. and then actually another film that won't be on my list, but I'll shout it out a little bit. Neil Jordan's The Brave One with uh, Jodie Foster. He's in that. Too. I always wanted to see that. Um, but yeah, this movie is an ensemble drama. It's a very dark film dealing with themes of, again, grief and family loss and all sorts of dark things but man visually it's perfect the way he executes this thing and you know this is before he goes on to do everything people know him for now um shortly after this he would do sicario then he would do arrival and then blade runner 2049 and all these he's just getting dunes coming out he's obviously sought after now but I think this is still one of his best films. Um, it's it's kind of, for whatever reason, forgotten a little bit. And um, the, the first, second, and third acts are all equally as good as one another. That's what I think elevates this movie even more for me. 
Um, it introduces you to all the characters very well. You get to know everyone. And then the meat of the story is engaging. And then by the time it ends, it's like, holy shit. He tied this thing together, man. Very well. It's just, he's got, he's got something. He's got something visually that, that's so different than most. Yeah. I, I was, I was sitting here thinking like he, you know, when Fincher first hit on the scene, he was praised so much for not just his directing, but specifically like his shot selections, where he placed his camera, where he chose to move his camera. Um, and as far as shot selection goes, Villeneuve is, is, is the kind of director that almost beats Fincher at his own game when it comes to that sort of thing. You know, like setting your camera right behind a screened in uh, door and letting that door open and then close, you know, and he's still, you're still seeing the shot through the screen of the screened in door, you know, he's, he's like Fincher only doesn't try to be as flashy. Yeah. He, 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 he lets slow zooms linger a lot. He's very steady most of the time. Yeah. In this film, especially, I think he's the king of shot selection in this century. Like just of, of, as far as where to place your camera, whether you're moving it or not. Um, and it's gorgeous. The only reason I didn't put this on the list is, um, and I was dying to rewatch this again, but I saw this more of as a, um, as a, like, uh, um, uh, interrogation kind of film. Like, cause he doesn't know if the kid's dead or not. The kid's missing. And, uh, he, he's kind of beating the absolute shit out of Paul Dano to, for him to tell them where the kid is. Yeah. And see, yeah. I, I took it as his story of being one of absolute revenge. That's just, yeah. just what I thought. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why it's here for me. Um, I, I am dying to watch this film again. I've only seen it the one time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I, it's excellent. I'm going to look up. I'm going to look for for another excuse to watch this. Maybe we'll, we'll rank Jill and Hall or, and it's two hours and 33 minutes, but it really earns it. For, for some reason, I never felt it. Yeah, see, with a movie like this, I I, I don't care. Uh, I, I don't care about it being that long. Like, I'll sit, gladly sit through two and a half hours if if what I'm watching is engaging and beautiful to look at well, for the entire he, two and a half. He really knows how to do that. So, um, I have two spots left. You have one. Yeah. And now I'm really wondering, because I expected my one and two to both be on your list. And there's mm. only room for one of them. So I'm really wondering what's going to be on your list. Which of these two is going to be in your spot? Uh, number two for me is the film. So Gaspar Noe admitted that um, the reason he made Irreversible the way that he did uh, and the reason he got funding for it was straight on the heels of Christopher Nolan's Memento telling the story you know, in that, that broken up structure. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Noe goes straight back to front uh, Nolan does like a back a little bit and then shows you some more and then, and then goes back and then rewinds it. And then, you know what I mean? It's kind sure, of a, yeah, yeah. It's a different structure, but, um, talk about unique yet again, I, I'm clearly, I'm giving extra points for like, for screenplays and, and the unique approach to the revenge tale. Um, and memento is that all the way. Um, Terrific performance by Guy Pierce. This is yet another one of his best. Yet another Guy Pierce sighting uh, uh, um, here on the on we this like list. We like Guy Pierce. We, we, we do. do. <laughs> we do. Remember uh, back in the day, I said he he's the he's the British Brad Pitt. He's gonna be 
He's Australian, be, isn't he? Or that's what I meant. Yeah. Australia. He's yeah. the Australian Brad Pitt. He's going to end up being. I as remember big you as, told me that. Yeah. He's going to be as big as Brad Pitt, and it never really happened. I mean, he still had a great career. He's had. He has had, and continues to yes. have a pretty, yes. pretty terrific career. Um, yeah, this was his real. L.A. Confidential and this were his two big, big breakouts. Yeah. Um, but uh, Joe Joey Pants. Joey Pants getting one of his better roles has a great performance in this Carrie Ann Moss she's excellent uh fresh off of the matrix um just uh this is a really unique and and somewhat confusing film uh, the first time you ever see it and and I feel like um what what stinks about that is that uh this it, it doesn't hold up quite as well the second time around because the contrivance of the mystery and the and the timeline um is what's so special about it but you are absolutely enthralled and perplexed the first go-round ever. It does lose a little something in the second go-round, but it is so unique and original and and um, it gave us a, a real early glimpse into the kind of, kind of screenplays that Christopher Nolan would write. Um, yeah, this is it's pretty fascinating. It's a it's fascinating an, film. It's an impressive early achievement for a director. Um I think that the reason I didn't have it on my list one because my rewatch wasn't very rewarding. I don't I don't know it wasn't just that that you already know what's going on, but I think there's some editing techniques sure that just didn't age well for me. Um some of the sequences in his when he's recalling things to himself and the in the scenes where he's just you know, reading notes and stuff and the music doesn't necessarily fit for me entirely. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean yeah, this is really a kind of a really landmark moment when now when you look about look back i mean it's not his first film but it's his first breakout it's his breakout movie yeah i'm gonna get you to put this on a list eventually even if i have to do amnesia films or something (laughs) that might be be the one we're gonna make it happen (laughs) all right so now i'm extra curious because if that was your number one, you would have said so by now. Yeah, it's not on my list. So now I'm wondering if we have the same number one. I don't know. Um, number one for me is Kill Bill as a whole. It's, same here. Uh, that's okay. that, uh, that is the quintessential revenge film, I think. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's not going to... I don't know many people who would put this as his best or even his top three films. But uh, this, is, this is an epic this is, as a revenge film, this is so entertaining. Oh, yeah. And it is just, I mean, it's a spectacle, man. It's just, it is full-blown Quentin Tarantino, whether you like it or not. It is, he is not, he's pulling out all the stops here. He is throwing everything into the cannon, you know, and he's just blowing away. Yeah. He's saying, this is what, this is what I got. This is my weaponry, and here we go. You, you, you get out now if you don't want to go along for this ride because it's going to be overly stylized a lot of the time but that's me man and i'm not apologizing but but i'm going to also going to tell you about a hundred different other stories little snippet stories along the way yeah uh, any idea that i've jotted down i'm t- i'm finding a way to tie it into this narrative what it what it lacks in nuance and by that i mean like it has clearly drawn good guys Mm-hmm. And bad guys, and there's very few in the middle. Yeah, even if um, they have a, a chance to argue their point before they're killed, <laughs> like Vivica. That'll a, happen. Like Vivica A. Fox's Great character. Scene. Yeah. Um, but there are very clearly drawn good guys and bad guys, 
And, and that is nothing new when it comes to the revenge film genre. But I think for a revenge film to work, you really have to have one person that you are rooting for to get their revenge. You know what I well, mean? Well, yeah, and he's paying tribute to old school movies as well. Yeah, and which he always, always does. But what he makes up for with that is just throwing, like you said, just taking a cannon and throwing, shooting it at the wall and then just pollocking together whatever, yeah. whatever he's got. Yeah. And what he's got here is a cavalcade of, of stars, both A-list and B-list, Doing some of their best work and ever. QT list, like yeah, 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 that too. <laughs> but but they're doing some of their best work ever with, I mean, terrifically choreographed fight scenes, unbelievable. And I mean, the fight scenes are the first thing that really comes to mind. Like like we just said, the Vivica a. Fox fight scene is the first real fight scene in the film, and it's mm-hmm. fantastic, excellent. Then there's the the fight scene that everyone thinks of that ends which is volume the, one. Her in the in the in the crazy eighty eight or whatever mm-hmm. whatever they're mm-hmm. called. Um, the, the, the scene out in this, the fight scene out in the snow with Lucy Liu, who made her second appearance on this list as well. Yes. Lucy, Alexis Liu credited in payback. In payback. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it, but you know, th- there's a, there's, there's all of these great fight scenes throughout both volume one and two, but there's, there's so much poignancy here too. There are great dramatic elements to this great dramatic scenes of just, of characters bearing their soul. There's lots of, there's lots of, of character development by way of flashback. And, and so often that can be really contrived and kind of annoying and, and really dull to sit through. Not with this because, because she's such a mystery, the more that we do get to learn about her, the more fascinating she becomes. Um, yeah, the, this is an, like you said, to borrow a phrase, it's an epic. It's a spectacle, man. It's just, it's never less than pure entertainment when you're watching this thing. I can revisit it and I'm still like as amazed at it, at it than I was the first time. And, and it's funny is that it is one movie, I think, but it's two halves of a movie for sure. So the way it's oh, cut, totally the first half is the, you know, absurd, ridiculous of his work overly violent um not in all realistic and then the second half is his obsession it, it reveals his obsession with the long monologues before something really happens mm-hmm. you know like the inglorious bastard scene before the mexican standoff down in the bar it yep. reminds me of that kill bill <clears throat> volume two is like that as one movie <laughs> yes so i i love both of these together as one. Um, it just, if you love Quentin Tarantino, this, I don't know how this couldn't be one of your favorites of his. I I think, I mean, it wouldn't be at the top of my list of his movies, but as far as just pure entertainment goes, I don't know if he's made it a more entertaining movie. Yeah. He could make six more movies and this would still always make the pick six best Tarantino films. And I'm curious if he's ever going to follow through with the, volume three with uh her daughter you and i would be first in line yeah absolutely if if they ever decide to keep theaters open yes true this was a lot of fun it's a great time yeah i'm surprised we had the same number one i don't know why i thought it'd be a little lower on your list i got a little worried that we that that it wasn't going to be on your list Mm. for a second um I, I'll say there were a couple that uh, didn't quite make the list you know i had really hyped myself for the limey Mm. and I still I, have yet to see it. I liked it, but I didn't love it. I didn't. 
And and you know what? What I didn't love about it was actually some of the directing. Really? I, f- I felt like some of the performances were really weak and it just seemed like that could have been fixed in in the way that it was edited and directed. But it really, the seams really showed. But I'll tell you what, Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda are both are incredible they? in it. They they are never bad in it. I, I'm curious now, even more actually, because I don't think I've ever once thought his directing was anything but great. Yeah, there's just there's some elements where it just it doesn't seem natural at all, hmm. and it's some of the editing and directing I felt like was what really held it back a little. I don't know why that movie's fallen through the cracks for so long for me. I still mm-hmm. have not seen it. It's so bizarre. I just watched it this morning for the first time. Um, one of the rewatches that I had that just was like, oh boy, I was scared that it was not going to hold up at all. It was one I loved from my childhood, and that's um, Alex Proyas's The Crow. Um, ah, yes. <laughs> yes. I loved this one when I was in high school as well. Loved it. Had the soundtrack. Of course, everyone did at that time. Um, but it is just laughable watching it now. Yeah. The, the whole city looks like a toy set and it just, it's really leans into the whole, well, this is based on a comic. This is based on a graphic comic and a gothic one this guy's a rocker and he plays guitar solos on top of a building with a crow perching on his shoulder and the city just looks so bad it's so funny to watch it now Uh, um i i also thought about unforgiven on this list mm. but again you know it's more of a it's not as much a revenge film as it is a like we're gonna dole out justice you know sure yeah um many ways to see revenge and to classify uh, it braveheart um i chose payback as my mel gibson movie for this <laughs> list braveheart i i think ultimately is a revenge film i just don't love it the way some other people do i think that movie is, is too much it is it is remarkable from a filmmaking standpoint point as far as the, you know the the big big scale movie making like lawrence of arabia or dr zhivago you know what i mean like it seems like a david lean movie it does. Um, it feels very of another era. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's very admirable. I just didn't leave it on the list. And then one that didn't quite hold up as well for me on a rewatch was a film that I used to really love. And that's Clive Owen in I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Oh, him and, yeah. Him and Jonathan Reese Myers. <laughs> Jonathan Reese Myers. And Terrence Stamp. Yeah. I used to really like that, but I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah. It's still really good. I just, there were six that were definitely better. So this was a lot of fun. This was a very fun list to make, but um, we're running out of of runway here, mm-hmm. so we need to get to the to the throwback challenge. Let's before, go right into it before this plane takes off. So, um, uh, listener Rob Patrick, very good friend <laughs> of the show, uh, you know, pe- people uh, who don't know him but listen to the show probably feel like they almost know him by now because <laughs> probably yeah, he's he's like a, a third ghost member almost. Um, he told us that uh, uh, Harlem Nights was C.C. Sabathia's favorite film and that he wanted us to review it for C.C. It would, it would mean a lot to C.C. Sabathia if we reviewed it. By the way, none of, neither one of us asked him how he knew that tidbit. I don't know where he finds this I, out. Probably, is C.C. Sabathia just talking about this, a post-game interview? No, my, my guess is he, saw, he read it on the back of a baseball card. <laughs> right, yes. That's <laughs> my guess. <laughs> Um, this is from 1989, which was, we're talking prime Murphy at the peak of his stardom. Could not miss. And it's three generations of, of black comic royalty, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, and Eddie Murphy. Um, 
but you get some other fun people thrown in there. Charlie Murphy makes an appearance. Um, <laughs> there's there's all sorts of of fun bad guys, and this is a mobster film. It is, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get Danny Aiello in this movie as a crooked, crooked guy. You could say, and this is this was his year where he was when wasn't this the same year as Do the Right Thing? It was. So he starred in Eddie Murphy's Harlem Nights and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing this year. So yes, Danny Aiello. Interesting. Friend to the African-American filmmaker. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Um, a lot of other those guys, as far as white actors, too. Like yeah. Michael Lerner as Bugsy. Yes, Lerner. Yeah. That guy is that one. That guy, I know that guy. Yeah. You know? He's he's a Coen Brothers <laughs> favorite, that one. Arsenio Hall shows up in a very weird performance. Wacky performance. I mean. He is over the top. He is credited as crying man. And you yeah. know why when you yeah. see this. Della Reese is a blast in this. <laughs> She's a lot of fun in this. I gotta tell you. So this is Eddie Murphy's only directorial entry so far. So far. He could still, you never know. He's he having a rejuvenation. I don't know if anybody will allow him to. I can see why he wasn't given another chance after seeing this movie. Because it's a mess. This movie is doesn't know what it is. It doesn't. It has no idea what it is. So it's really just about, like you said, three generations of legends that he put he wanted to hey, let's all make a movie, clearly. Mm-hmm. I'm Eddie Murphy. I can do whatever I want right now. I'm coming off of Beverly Hills Cop franchise, and you know we can do this. So, hey, guys, Richard, Red, let's go. Yeah. And you know, to the credit of Richard Pryor and Red Fox, they look like they're having fun, I guess. I, I feel like Richard Pryor is the only person who actually knows what movie he's in. Maybe. He is the best part of this film. Far and away the best part of this. But he's film. still not I, given much to do. I like Red Fox in it, but Pryor is far and away the best part. And there are Red times. Red Fox has one note thing though going yeah. on here. Uh, Pryor seems like oddly restrained, mm-hmm. and and the film's better for it because he seems to be the only one that's able to ride that wave between the serious elements and the comedic elements, and he seems to know which scene he's in from time to time. Whereas too many other people don't seem to know. Oh, is this a funny scene or a serious scene? Yeah, and this almost intentionally felt like Eddie Murphy going, okay, right now I'm kind of like riding high, like let's say Robert Redford and hey, Richard Pryor, I think you're like the Paul Newman guy right now. Let's make The Sting. Let's make it together. Yeah. <laughs> felt like The oh, Sting God. remake. That's a remake a, to The Sting. That's another thing. The con in this yeah, it's is not engaging. so boring. And it's so telegraphed and, and just and I get what they're trying to say here. The, I mean, there are some idiots that fall right into the hands of them in this movie. Especially, you know, because of their own hubris. Right, of course. But isn't that something we've seen a thousand times in Con Man and Heist movies? This movie's saying nothing new. That's another problem. Uh, Look, I don't hate this thing. There were times when I did think it was actually funny, but those times were pretty few and far between. And, you know, the set decoration and everything just looks so cheap. It does. And I would have thought that for a guy like Eddie Murphy, he could have gotten... Not only could he have gotten a lot of more money to make the film that he wanted to make and make it look good, but I would have thought that a guy like Eddie Murphy would have had, would have been able to get some of the best people Mm -hmm. behind the camera to help him do it. This doesn't look like that did. And this seemed like it was a real turning point in his career because he was hot as hell Mm -hmm. and could have done anything he wanted. And he chose this passion project. And I understand if that's what he wanted to do, it's his career. But his career never really was the same after this. And the the trajectory and the, the the sort of things that he projects that he chose after this, 
it seemed like it was more about making money and less about making some of the things that had, that had made him such a gigantic star before this. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. Um, and you can kind of trace that all the way back to this film. This movie, uh, I struggled to find anything to like about it, to be honest. It was a hard one for me to sit through. I agree. I'm just uh, wondering how hard. It's rough, man. So they spend like maybe five minutes of time setting up this guy's character. Eddie Murphy's character as a child and how he becomes involved with the Richard Pryor character. Yeah. And sees him as a father figure. There's one really poorly acted scene where, where it's Eddie Murphy's character quick as a kid. Yeah. Who sees violence and gambling all at once. And that's what formed him into the hard hitting, hard worn young man that he is. Well, it seemed like he was already hard hitting, which is how he got into that room to begin with. Cause he, he, he said, he said his mom was dead and his dad was dead and he <laughs> right. was living on the streets and he was not scared of this, of the scary man. And like, that was it. That's all the backstory you that's get. That's all you get. And you're supposed to just assume, yes, we know who this guy is mm-hmm. and he's tough as nails. Right. And actually we don't really get much out of quick. Honestly, he's not actually likable to be honest to me. No, there are, and there are scenes where Eddie Murphy plays, plays it really like well, actually he's, he seems really genuine there. He still had so much of that charisma and like, of course, he could, naturally. he could improvise pretty well and make it seem very natural. Um, but uh, but one thing he can't do is he he kind of either has to be the nice, cool, good guy, or he's got to be like the the charming dick. And he tries to do both in this. And it's yeah. And then there's it, the problem with a lot of the way the women are portrayed portrayed in the movie is yeah. It's pretty problematic. It is even uh, Della Reese. Yeah, I mean then she's got the most to work with, I guess. But it's there, still, there's a fight scene between uh, her and Eddie Murphy. And it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And it's trying to be funny and it just kind of just overstays its welcome. Yeah. That's what this movie is. It kind of overstays its welcome. 31 years later, some of it just doesn't. Yeah. It, does, it doesn't. And naturally, good. not all of it's going to and in most movies from that era. But there's some issues here. Um, what a what a strange, strange movie. What are you giving it? Oh, man. I'm not, I'm not going to go too harsh. Um, I wanted to go really low, but I'll go with a two on this thing. It's, I... I it, I, that's exactly where I am too. Um, I almost gave it a two and a half, but, but just the way it ends too, which is yeah, like, come on. It's just such a, like a, a, a wet fart of an end. It is. And, and some of that production value, I just feel like, God, that could have been, it could have at least looked better, you know? And it didn't really have any of that. Yeah. I mean, there's a it. scene where the con is pulled off at the very end and there's an explosion that just looks so bad. Like, yeah. It looks like a little toy set. <laughs> The film, the film is fun in, in many stretches, but it that's about be. it. That's really about it. There's nothing too much more admirable, admirable past that. Not really. Not really at all. And I feel um, like these guys, m- many people in this film deserved a lot better. Yeah. I'd love to go back and research a little bit on like what this actually did. I mean, it might've started a downfall a little bit for him. I mean, if you look at it in a timeline of, what successes he had in the nineties after this. The only way that this could be worse is if they did a modern remake that was directed by and starring Kevin Hart. Yeah. And I don't think, fortunately we won't get that. I hope not because this movie bombed. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that though. And that's scary. That's a scary idea. It's a terrifying future. If, if, if Trump is reelected, we're getting that dystopian future. That's, that's scary. I don't want to think about that. Where Harlem Nights 2 with Kevin Hart is number one at the box office. I will say two things, though. I'm glad I watched this. 
Glad I got this one off my list. Yes, thank you, CC. And I'm genuinely hopeful that Eddie Murphy will find a new resurgence after Dolomite. And now he's got his sequel to Coming to America with mm-hmm. the same director as Dolomite. Yeah. You never know. I'm looking forward to it. Let's hope. He's, he's still got it. Yeah. I, I'm also looking forward to a resurgence of Arsenio Hall's career. Well, I mean... Hopefully he reprises this character in any movie. I don't mean, that would be great. Crying man. (laughs) All right. Well, that's our show for today. Remember to subscribe to the Film Harmonic on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review and a generous rating if you feel so inclined. Subscribe also on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. Send us your suggestions, just like Rob did, to the the filmharmonic at gmail.com. Uh, and that's where you send in your throwback challenges. We will read them on the air and we will, uh, and we'll, we'll shout you out and we'll even do your film. We have, we have kind of like a small library of these coming up. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of ticking them off and we're actually going to, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to give you a two for one next week because, um, we do not have a new film of note to discuss next week. So for that reason, we decided to repeat the events of a few weeks ago and have each of us roll the dice on a random year in film. So we'll save you the suspense. I will be ranking the six best films of 2005, and Andy will rank his favorites from 2008. So um, fun that they're uh, unexpected, but fun that they're they're kind of close in in an era as well. Yeah, and which um, is random. And I, I, I without looking at what came out your year or mine. Um, you know, it, we might find some fun things where like crossover between actors, maybe even directors possibly. Yeah. So this, it could make for a fun juxtaposition of, of yeah. sixes. It could. And it's kind of fun things that happen when, you know, uh, we don't have a new film for a week. So <laughs> yeah. we've got two throwback challenges. Yes. We are crossing off not one, but two more listener requested suggestions. First, we'll tackle the 2017 Netflix original documentary, the Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which chronicles the events surrounding the death of the black gay rights activist and Stonewall veteran. Then we will finish with a discussion on a lesser known independent film that won the special jury award at South by Southwest in 2014. We're talking Colin Shifley's Animal. So um, the Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson was given to us by my girlfriend um, because she's like, I'm sick of watching all these weird movies uh, can we watch something that I want to watch and I'm like sure right into the show and we can watch something you want to watch there we go <laughs> and then um, somebody that I was in a film with once John Hawk uh, he wrote in I had no idea he listened to the show he lives in LA and he listens to it on his commute and he he I guess has worked on a couple of Colin Shifley's films at least one of them not this one but others um, and he wanted us to to uh, use to, to do this one as a throwback challenge to see what we thought of it. So uh, if you're listening, John, your uh, wish has been granted and we will do that on next week's show. Looking forward to it. It's got uh, it's on Amazon Prime and it's got uh, some pretty, pretty decent reviews. So I'm yeah. looking forward to it. And a late career performance from John Hurd. Yeah, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Um, yeah, that was a lovely email we got from him. We were, um, yeah, it really was. That was nice, and we got confirmation, like person, like actual confirmation that that um, Shay Wiggum is a great human being and yes. a very nice gentleman. He's <laughs> met him. 
on a, on a regular basis, he's seen this guy yes. several times. He can vouch for Shea Wiggum as being an A-plus dude. We hoped for it, and we got it. Yes. Okay. Now we no longer have to question it. He just Thank plays you. scumbags in films. <laughs> yes. Not in real life. So. What a man. I love that man. All right. Well, I guess we'll see you next time. Yeah, sure. We can do that. Yeah. All right. On the film harmonic? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Substitute.